place on earth. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 11. Now some of us, of course, are familiar with the concept of church. We understand it. We've been around it, taught it. We've, we've heard the idea of what church is. But there are some of us that, that aren't. We're new to church. We're new to the idea and the concept. And so it's important that we understand what it is that we are a part of, what it is that we are doing what a church really is. And so we're taking a total here of six weeks to gain a a decent overview, not in-depth, there's a lot more we could talk about, but a a decent overview of who we are and what we are to do as a church, as a body of Christ. We are maturing, we are growing, and we need to to face the future of what's ahead of us with, with knowledge and with purpose and with confidence, and so this will help us do that. And so we've taken some time to think through the ideas or these concepts of the most beautiful place on earth, talking about how we can pray for one another as a church deeply and passionately. Then uh, last week and the week before, we talked about the beautiful plan for the church, and that is how God, uh, uh, what he intended the church to be and how he has established it in his authority and what a church is supposed to look like. And this morning, we're going to begin on that third section, which is a beautiful partnership in the church. And we're going to look at that in two stages uh, as we look here. And essentially what we're looking at is how does the church function? How does it work? What is the structure of the church? And so to this morning we're going to start, we're going to look at godly leadership. And then next week we're going to look at strong ministers. And what we're going to see is we're going to see how God has taken a group of people and he brings them together and how does he balance that and structure that so that it does in fact achieve his purpose and his intent the way he designed it to. And so that will be this week and next week and then the last week we'll look at the beautiful purpose of the church and that is what is church supposed to do and how do we do it. And so, this morning we're going to look at this one, the gift of godly leadership. And our text this morning is going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. As we get there, we learned last week, as we look into Matthew 16 and 18 and 28, we looked into those and we saw that Christ is our authority. He is the head of the church. And he has delegated his authority here on earth to the church. So, as a church, we've been given Authority. We've been given authority to speak for him on earth. We've been given the authority to, to define the boundary of who are and who are not Christ's people. Uh, also with that comes the authority to affirm believers in Christ. And that is to bind one another together. And we bring them together into the fellowship with God's people in the church through baptism. And then also not only to bind but also to exclude. And that is to protect the purity of the gospel and the purity of God's people by protecting it from those that would bring disrepute to the name of God. Now that authority which Christ delegates is held in the body of Christ, the church, not in individuals, not in one elite man over all of of the churches or even a small elite group, but held in the body of Christ. It is a place where all the members are equally important. We perform different roles, but every part of the church is equally important. We are all mutually accountable to one another, and we are so under the authority of Christ. 
unlike some religious structures, there isn't a division between the clergy and the laity. Perhaps you've heard those terms before, the clergy, and that is the religious leaders, the, the top men of the, uh, the religious system. And then there's the laity, which is the people who, who just come and, and listen. In the Word of God, he doesn't make that distinction that there is this clergy who have some special relationship with God and then there's the laity who are just out there and they have to have the clergy to be able to hear God. In God's eyes, the leadership in the church and those who are members of that church in God's eyes are all the same in his relationship to Jesus Christ. We will perform different roles and we will have a different place but we all have the same place in God's eyes. So rather uh, than than have these differences, there is this beautiful partnership. A partnership that God has created in this institute of the church which he has designed. A communion between believers. And as we each fill our unique role, as we each fulfill our unique place in this body of Christ, we bring great glory to to God. And so this morning I want to quickly look at the first part of that, and that is the gift of godly leadership. So let's begin. We're going to read in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 11 through to verse 16. It says, He himself, that is Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word to learn, to grow, to understand, encourage us and bless us, dear God that we might be obedient to your word, to follow it, so that we can properly, rightly, and gloriously proclaim your name and your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to look here just for a few minutes to, into this part. Really, we're just going to look at the first few verses of this this morning. Uh, probably more one verse, and then gather some thoughts from around Scripture. On the gift of godly leadership to a church. But it starts with this in that we are a godly community. A godly community which God shows us and Christ shows us involves a significant commitment. A significant commitment. You see, Jesus, as we have seen in the past weeks, Jesus established his assembly. So he called out his people to be gathered into churches, into his assemblies, to be able to proclaim his name. It is his assembly, it is his church. And it is clear, by the time that Jesus ascended into heaven, after he had been resurrected, it is clear that by that time, structure was already there. The forming, the the workings of a church was already there. This was not just a loose affiliation 
of like-minded people. So when Christ left, it wasn't just, oh, look, we all like Jesus, we'll get together and we'll do... There was structure and it was, there was order there. It was designed with order. Because Jesus gave it order, he gave it aim, he gave it purpose, and he gave it structure. They had regular meetings. They were, uh, had a purpose to pursue. They had ordinances to administer. And they had authority to exercise. There was order there. And it's the very same as, as we, we look, and we're in the process of that now, and I'll share some of those things with you in the weeks to come, of what we need to do as a church to register with our own government and say, here we are, this is a, this is a church, and they want to know all of these things. Do you have regular meetings? Do you have a leadership? Do you have a structure? All of those things are already present when Jesus ascends in the church. Commitment by believers was expected because it is the authority of Christ on earth. So it was natural. If Christ gave authority to this gathering, to these, these uh, assemblies of, of people, then it was natural, it was assumed that we would commit, we're called to significantly commit to one another. To this end, we'll speak more particularly next week as we look at the body as a whole and how it works. But let me give you just a few quick comments here in terms of significant commitment the Bible calls for to the people of God as a church. That is that we are to love one another deeply and sacrificially. We are expected to commit to people we hardly know. Somebody gets saved and baptized in the church. It's not a, oh, we'll get to know you, will kind of warm up to you. It's a, you are family. You are here. You are part of us. And we are expected to love one another deeply and sacrificially, to accept them in as family, because they are family. Then we are to assemble regularly. The Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 10 and 25, and there it also tells us that in our assemblies and when we are not assembled together, that we're to encourage one another and also to guard one another. Say, so to some of these details, we'll speak more fully next week as we get a little bit more personal in the nature of how a church works next week. But these indicate that there is indeed a, a uh, significant commitment that is expected of God's people to one another in a church. But also, the Bible shows us that there is a formal commitment to church. There is an expectation that there is a formal committing to the church. It seems a straightforward idea that if this is Christ's authority, if he has designed it, if he has established it, then it would seem the natural thing that we would commit ourselves to it. And this formal nature of committing to the church was seen from the very beginning. In fact, as we look right at the very beginning, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, it says there, it says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So there was a list. They knew these are our disciples. There was a list of names, a formal list. Later on, uh, after Peter has preached his great sermon on the day of Pentecost and things move on, it says for us in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. To who? To the 120. 
There is a formal gathering. There is a formal commitment there to be made. We've seen the realities of that in the weeks before as we've seen what God intended of the church and how it works in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are a godly community which needs both strong and formal commitment. In the context of that community, though, there is this gift of godly leadership. The gift of godly leadership. Now, I want to quickly go through a few things here, and we're not going to spend a great deal of time to this issue so much, except to define and show what we need to see here from our passage. But it begins by being told here of the strong foundation. The strong foundation. It says in verse 11, And he himself, of course Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Towards the end of our, our text at, in uh, verse... Um, oh, where am I? Uh, verse 16, uh, verse 15, it tells us that he is the head, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We've seen that Christ is the head, and indeed he is the cornerstone. That's what we looked at last week and the week before in Matthew chapter 16. He is, Jesus Christ is the perfect and sure foundation, which is what Paul reminds us of also in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is, he is the reason, as we saw last week in, in Matthew 16, it says the gates of Hades, the gates of death and hell cannot prevail against it. He is the reason the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And the reason it can't prevail is because he is victorious. Just before this, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul writes first, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Uh, toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So see the progression. He has died. He paid the debt for sin. He was raised in power. He has ascended to rule in power. And it continues. And he put all things, the Father, that is, put all things under the Son's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why can the gates of hell, why can Satan not prevail against what God has created? Because Jesus is already victorious. He has defeated sin and death. They cannot overcome what Christ has won. In that victory, he won the spoils of battle. He also sits in heaven as our head, as our sovereign ruler, as the defender of his churches. This is why we bow to his authority. This is why we read the word of God. We expound the word of God. The rule of authority is his word. He began it. He organized it. He taught us what it is. He structured it. He empowered it. And he protects it. He will do all of these things for his church. This church here exists because of Jesus. And only because of Jesus. 
There is no other reason. He will hold it as long as we are faithful to him. He will keep it. When we fail to submit to him, when we fail to reflect him, when we fail to teach and to preach him and the gospel of Jesus Christ, or when a church or this church becomes about us and our preferences, when we put our own ideas and our own feelings and our own felt needs ahead of what Christ wants, then we cease to be a church. That's when we become a club, no longer a church. As long as Christ is head, it remains a church. So he is its head. He tells us here that there is a strong foundation which begins with the apostles. We know Jesus spent all those years training these men. Jesus chose these men with purpose, not for a gimmick. This was not a show. I mean, if we were going to pick men to lead the church, it probably wouldn't have been these ones. You know, we often talk about the weaknesses of the apostles and we look at their weaknesses and we look at their lives and we see them as examples to us of how we can live and how we can uh, overcome things because of, of the example that they have. But Jesus wasn't just picking these men as examples of what it is to live as godly people. He picked these men to be the foundation of his church. To be what would start, to be that rock bed on which he would build and grow it. See, could there be a more vulnerable time in history for the church than when Jesus Christ ascends and his apostles are left there? That was at a crucial period in history. If that transition doesn't work, if that transition falls apart, then it all falls apart. So when Jesus chose these men, these apostles, they had a very heavy burden that would be on their shoulders. It's now in their hands, as it were. Jesus ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us that we are to be his witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and the other most parts of the world. And I'll be with you always. He says in Matthew 28, the same thing. He gives them their, their commission. And these are the things that we'll look at in the last week of what we're to do. But, you know, in every place, in all of those great commission passages we have, that is where Jesus sets out and tells us what we're to do for him and what we're to be as a church, in all of those places, what goes with the command is also his presence. Lo, I'll be with you always even to the end of the age. These men hold a unique and powerful role in church history. Now, contrary to what some people believe, there are no apostles today. These were unique men with a unique role, very important role in history. They were to establish the church so that it could flourish beyond. But then we're told about the prophets is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets developing behind the apostles and we see a little bit about how they work particularly in Corinthians first Corinthians and the role that they they played but developing behind the apostles kind of as they went through them and through the teaching of the apostles God gifted some others as prophets their duty also was to form the foundation of the church so that this fledgling body which was beginning to expand and grow around the world could continue to flourish and grow strong and be what God needed it to be. 
Now the apostles began in Jerusalem and and many of them stayed there, but then after a while, it wasn't long, and then they would scatter and they would move to different parts of the world, taking the gospel with them. But you've only got 12, uh, 13, depending on how you, you want to count it. And they can only go so far through the world and do so much and do so much teaching. Paul perhaps traveled the most through all that area and uh, he could only be in one place at a time and often spent uh, a great deal of time in one place. And the word of God was yet to be written in terms of the New Testament that was still in the process as the apostles were were teaching and uh, the spirit was inspiring and they were writing it down. But it wasn't until almost 100 AD that we ended up having the complete New Testament circulating around in forms throughout the world. So that wasn't, wasn't there yet. So there needed to be some way in which God could communicate to his people, and he did so through the apostles, and he did so through these men, the prophets, who had the ability to speak for God in the company of his people. Their ministry seemed to differ somewhat from the apostles in that they ministered in the local churches and, of course, they didn't seem, as, as what we see in Scripture, to have the same signs and wonders that the apostles did. Those were the signs of the apostles. Once the word of God was complete, the need for both of these foundations, the apostles and the prophets, diminished. There was no need to have somebody else speak for God. God had spoken for himself. The word of God came to be the foundation. So... From the strong foundation, then developed a strong tradition. Right? A strong tradition. This follows not only have we got the apostles and the prophets, but then it speaks to us in verse 11 of Ephesians 4 about the evangelists. About the evangelists. You know, since the Second Great Awakening, which was one of the great movements of Christianity, particularly in the northeastern part of the United States and around. But through, through about then, through about then, we've started to come think of evangelists as kind of God's traveling salesmen. They're these, uh, these guys you know, who have four suits and ten sermons and travel around the world, uh, putting up tents and doing revivals around the world. And that's kind of how we begin to think about this term evangelist. But in the scripture, that's not what evangelist meant. Um, to, to describe more about what evangelists meant in the scripture, we would probably def- define it more like a missionary or church planter. Somebody who went, went out to establish a church, to, to reach the people of, of unreached places with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They began to move out to proclaim the good news. And that's essentially what evangelist means, to be a proclaimer of good news. And so these also were a very necessary part of God carrying out his commission, that there would be people who would take the word of God and move out into the world and establish churches throughout all the world after the apostles had done it. They could take the word of God. They could take what they had in the the scriptures and move out and begin to spread the word of God throughout all the world. So we have these evangelists, they formed a very important part of God structuring and building his church in a time when it needed to expand and to grow. The last of the groups that we find here in verse 11 is pastors and teachers, which is one thing, the pastor-teacher. And here, for a time, all four of these groups existed together. For a short time, we would find all four of them together. The temporary nature, of course, of the apostles and the prophets gave way to a more permanent leadership. 
You see, the, the apostles weren't going to live forever. They all died, many of them, horrible deaths. But they couldn't stay forever. So this temporary transitional leadership needed to develop into something secure, something that could be reproduced as it began to go out. And that's the pastor-teacher, the one who would begin to lead and take over that role of leadership and teaching in the churches as they spread. The torch was now being passed to the next generation so that they could then pass the torch to the next generation. The apostles laid the foundation and they gave the tools, teaching and the Bible, and then they passed it on to those that followed. In Titus, Paul speaks of this to Titus and and he tells him that he needs to make elders in every city. We'll talk about that word elders in, in just a moment. Paul gathers together the elders from Ephesus and around to speak to them in the end parts of Acts. As I said, the, the, the term pastors and teachers is one thing. It describes two different aspects of, of one role, two functions of the office. There is a gift of teaching. If you look through the lists of gifts, that there, are, there is a gift of teaching. But not everyone that's gifted to teach is gifted to pastor. But everyone who is gifted to pastor will be gifted to teach. And that is an important thing to know. If we are to have a pastor, the pastor must be able to teach. It is part of his role. It is part of his gifting. So, there are three terms in Scripture which are used to describe this office of pastor. Let's look just quickly at the three terms so that we learn to understand it. Because over the years, these terms have been drawn out to mean different things. And so a lot of people have come to different ideas of what they are and what they mean. But all three of these terms are used to the same office. The first is that of elder. The Bible speaks of an elder in Acts chapter 20. And I'll I'll just read a couple of verses here for you quickly from Acts chapter 20. Because in fact, in this passage, all three of these words are used interchangeably uh, in this passage of Scripture. So in Acts chapter 20 in verse 17 says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Then further down in verse 28, it describes some of what he talked to them about through there. And then in verse 28 says, therefore, take heed to yourselves, this being instructions to those elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So there, just to go ahead, I'll give you all three of those because they're all mentioned there. The first is elder. The second is overseer or bishop. And the third is shepherd or pastor. All three of those used interchangeably to speak of the same office, but to speak of different aspects of the same office. The first one, elder. This has to do with the dignity and leadership of the position. To be a leader in the church of God is not a light position. It is not one you give away easily. It is not something that you, just anybody can have. Because remember, what is the church? The church is the authority of God on earth. So if you're going to lead that, if you're going to be part of that, that is a very dignified and important place to hold in the role that God has. It is a position of responsibility. In fact, a position of great responsibility. 
and great honour. It probably carries over, at least in some form, from the Old Testament idea of the elder. Some suggest, and many uh, scholars suggest, that to be an elder in the, the Levites or the Sanhedrin or even in the Old Testament, you had to be at least 20 years old. Say, well, that's still kind of young, but given the way society was structured by then, by 20, they were men with families and jobs, and so they had some experience behind them. But uh, some say they must be at least 20. Others have said, and this is kind of later writing, so that it was probably 50 to 56. What we do know is this. The Bible doesn't set an age limit. The Bible doesn't say an elder is this old. What it does stress, though is the importance of that office, the dignity of that office. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, let the elders who rule, or let the elders who rule well, be counted worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in the word and doctrine. Their function is to lead and direct, to guide to help lead the church in making the decisions. That is the first word that's used to describe the office of leadership. The second, as I mentioned, is overseer or bishop. See, both of these words used in Scripture, in fact, in one of the places where it describes the the office of pastor and and bishop in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, if a man, uh, sorry, um, where am I? Verse, oh yeah, uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. Overseer or bishop. So this, as the, the word suggests, overseer, suggests to us, uh, of course, the idea of oversight, of being a supervisor, of watching out for the last word, the word which we probably use more often than, than the others in most cases, and uh, at least in modern society, is that of pastor. It comes out as shepherd in some places, or to shepherd the flock of God, or pastor, because that's exactly what it means. It means to shepherd. It stresses the protection, the guidance, the provision, the warning it carries with it that very idea that we think of when we think of the, you know, the shepherds of old who looked after the sheep, who cared for the sheep, who, who were, were there to protect and guard and provide for. It's a watch care role. Part of the, uh, the duty of a pastor is to watch over the people, to make sure that God's people are following God's word, that they're not straying into danger, to providing them with what they need. To grow. This role is how God planned to lead and to care for and to strengthen his churches. They would become these people. We need to, 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 to pray for pastors because it is a tough role. It is a role which God says they will give account for. Every pastor, every elder, overseer of a church will stand before Christ and give account for how he led the people of God. So it is a place of great responsibility. So God gifts each and every of his churches with godly leadership. And let's quickly look at the last here. The heart of godly leadership. 
If God is going to gift people to his churches, to his church who can lead, and it is indeed a great responsibility which requires all three of those aspects. It requires someone to hold the dignity of the office, to lead and to guide. It requires somebody to oversee and administer, and it requires somebody to care and guide and protect. If God is going to call people like that to lead his church, what type of person should that be? Now, while God doesn't give us an age in terms of elders, he does give us some requirements, some restrictions, some guidelines of which to do. The first of those things is that they have a heart for God. In 1 Timothy, and we'll be here in 1 Timothy for just uh, a few minutes. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is another one of the passages which speaks of the requirements of the office of elder, bishop, or pastor. And it begins with these words. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It is a good thing. It is a good desire to want to lead God's people. That is a glorious thing to want to do. To be a leader of God's people. It is a good desire. It is a good calling. And as a church, that's something that we ought to be encouraging and considering as we look amongst the people around us and in us, that we ought to be encouraging those things and considering those things to recognize those that have those gifts, who can fulfill those roles both within our own church and even beyond as they're sent out to evangelize. It's an important and necessary work. Desire doesn't always come at a young age. I knew from a a young age that I wanted to be a pastor. I fought with God for a while over it because I had better things I wanted to do. But from a young age, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, at, At home, when we were kids... Um, we had the same thing, you know, packing in and out of school. So we out of schools and things. We had the pulpit and all that at home. So uh, at home, my brother and I would play church. He was the song leader, and I was the preacher. And we'd get behind the pulpit, and he'd song lead. Uh, he doesn't do that now. He, he doesn't sing now. He goes to church, but he doesn't sing. Uh, and, and I would be the preacher. But it's not always at the young age that you find that desire. I know people retired where. They began to minister in this way. It doesn't always come at a young age, that desire to do it, but it is a good desire, a wonderful thing. And we need to be sure that it is a right desire, that it is a desire for God and not for ego. There are some who see the power and authority that can be had to rule over people and who will take advantage of that. And so it's important that a church recognizes that the person that is going to be chosen or ordained to lead is one who is doing it for God and not for themselves. It's a work. It's a hard work. But it carries great responsibility. And so, not only does he have a godly desire, but if he has a godly desire, he needs to have godly character. And so, Titus and Timothy here give us a list of what that means. This is a faithful saying. 
If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Quickly, just let me run through these things real quick and some of the things that need explanation. To be blameless is kind of an overarching description. It needs to be above reproach. The husband of one wife or a man that is pure, one who is faithful and good and pure in his relationship with his wife, temperate or self-controlled, sober-minded, of sound mind, to have good behavior or respectable, that is orderly, respectable and honorable. You want dragging up the dregs of society to be the leaders of God's people. They need to show an honorable character. Hospitable, or literally a lover of strangers. If the church is indeed to commit itself and to bind itself to all those who will come into it and be baptized and find fellowship in Jesus Christ, then the leader of that church should be exactly that, loving and hospitable. Able to teach. So not just willing to teach. He needs to be able to teach. Means to study and to meditate. Hard work. Not given to much wine or not a drunkard. Not violent, so not a striker or a brawler. Not greedy for filthy money. Or not greedy generally. Not gentle. Not quarrelsome. There's not a fighter, not a person that's contentious. Now, he needs to be someone who is ready and able to fight for what is right, but not one who is out looking for a fight. Let's be honest. We all know there's a fair few Christians out there like that who are out there looking for a fight. Our leaders ought not to be ones looking for a fight, but who, when the fight must be, are willing and able to do it. Not covetousness, who rules his house well. The reason that's there to rule his house well does not mean that his children must, in the end, all be believers and end up following in his path and that everything is always hunky-dory. Because that's not true. It never is. Just because you're born into a pastor's house doesn't mean that you're going to be saved. What it means, though, is if a pastor, if a leader of the church can rule his house well, that is, he is good to his wife, He is honorable to his children. It shows a character. It shows traits which are true outside of the home. See, what a man is in his home is what he really is. He can be something different outside of his home. But you look into his home and you will know what he really is, what he is really like. Not a recent convert. Not to be young in the Lord. There are great dangers in church leadership. They are great. To be a novice in Christ is not the place, not the person for leadership. There needs to be clarity of doctrine, 
strength of character, goodness of God, and a good testimony to those outside. Quickly, let me give you the last, and that is a, not only a heart for God, but a heart for God's people. You see, one of the descriptions the Bible gives is exactly that, the shepherd. He is to shepherd God's people. He's a shepherd of God's people. We're not to act like hirelings, that is, somebody who's just hired to do a job. Somebody who is in leadership of God's people is deeply invested in the people. It's not a job. No pastor, no elder overseer is going to say, well, this is just, this is just my job. It's not a job. Hard work, but it's not a job. We're called to shepherd, to care for God's people, to watch over God's people. You know, pastors often have to have a thick skin. Church leaders often have to have a thick skin, and in public they often do. But at night, many of them are crying. Not for themselves, but because of the weight and the sadness of the people they minister to. And then they rejoice when there's glory. Because what happens to the people of God strikes deeply into the heart of church leaders. It's not a, it's, it's not a CEO. It's not a position of a, a company to shepherd. Someone who deeply cares for his people. I tell people often when they ask, and they say, what's the church like? Or what are the people like? And I tell them, and I tell you this with all seriousness and all truth. I would die for you. And when you hurt, it hurts me. And when there's trouble, it troubles me. And when you're joyful, I'm rejoicing with you. That is a work of God and a life that God calls his people to be. His leaders to be. Because at the heart of it is a tender care. Not only does he shepherd God's people, but he teaches God's people. He teaches God's people. It's a key function of pastoring is teaching. It forms the structure around which to shepherd. See, as we teach, we instruct and we help you understand God's word. Then from that instruction, we're able to guide and direct and help and encourage in that word. We are to teach the Bible. That's our duty. We're not to teach anything else to you. We're to teach you the Bible and how to use it. So, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 gives us a good instruction to that. So they read distinctly from the book, that is the Bible, the uh, law in the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. See, that's what I try to do each Sunday, each Wednesday, each time we get together to teach is to give you the word of God, give you the sense of what it is, and help you to understand it. That's what we do. We're to teach the Bible. We're to teach the Bible clearly and accurately. Second Timothy tells us that we're to rightly divide the word of truth. That is, we're to take scripture and we're to exegete it, if you will. That is, tell you what it means. Show you, this is what it is. Not take a piece of, uh, a portion of scripture and to tell you what we want it to mean, 
or what we hope it will mean or where it will go or how it will make your life ten times better, but to take a passage of Scripture and to show you what it means clearly and accurately. I pray that I do that better and better with each week. Because the Bible is the Word of God, we're to do it with authority. See, I'm not to stand up here and get this and go, well, I, 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 I think I think it means, this, I think you can do this with, with God's Word and be timid about it. If this is God's Word and I have done my diligent duty to rightly divide it, then I should stand here with authority and say it with authority. Not because I'm authoritative, but because I have done the due diligence to find the authority of God's word so that you know the Bible is authoritative. We're to teach to this end so that you know God better. That is my greatest desire. Anyone that will lead God's people here beyond, that is our desire, that you will know God better. For our good and for the proclamation of the gospel, God has established the church. He planned it. He designed it. He's given it direction. It is not a directionless, rudderless entity. He planned for it to have strong, godly leadership throughout the ages, from one generation to the next, so that his name will be glorified and the gospel will be proclaimed truly. Now, as we'll see next week, one of the responsibilities of the body of Christ is if that leadership strays, they are no longer to be leadership. If they're not teaching the word of God then they ought not to be leading the people of God. So, the pastor is there to strengthen and to care for God's people, to lead and to direct and to guide. And what our church ought to do with godly leadership? Submit to the godly leadership. Care for those in leadership as the leadership cares for you. Pray for them. Why ought we to do this? Because this is the partnership that God has built. A partnership to bring the glory to God so that we can serve you with joy and not sorrow. And profit is found for all. This is the beauty, at least in part this morning, of the partnership in the church. Next week we're going to see how it all comes together as we build and as we work together as one glorious body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed our source of authority. I pray, dear God, that each time I open it to lead, that it would indeed fulfill the responsibility of teaching truth rightly, clearly, orderly and to great benefit. Lord, may we, as we look forward and build the leadership of this church to be what it needs to be, what it can be, pray as you raise up men now and men in the future so that from one generation to the next, your name will be praised amongst your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Will you please stand with me as we sing a song of response this morning?